When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's bestsellers, Undaria Algae Body Oil and Undaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com, code GLOW. Hey, it's Matea, reminding you that this show cannot be made without you. If you've been thinking about becoming a Canada Land supporter, we're having a pretty great sale right now. You'll get premium ad-free feeds of all Canada Land shows, discounts on merch from our store, and exclusive bonus episodes, like a behind-the-scenes tour of the federal budget lockup, more of Boris Johnson's trip to Canada, and of course, more of us yapping about what's hot in politics right now. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canada Land supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special offer for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. Just go to canadaland.com slash join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. From Canada Land, this is Oppo. Hi, I'm Sandy Garasino in Vancouver. And I'm Jen Gerson in Calgary, the most glorious place on the planet this week. How have you been, Sandy? Been pretty good. No hailstorms? Oh my goodness, no. We've had like 22 degree weather and the leaves are turning. It's just, I've never experienced a fall this perfect. I hope everybody in Canada is having a beautiful fall to go along with sitting inside. As we're recording, we're waiting for Donald Trump to emerge through the golden gates of the hospital. And there will be, I'm sure, music. I'm sure that Donald Trump should definitely be leaving the hospital this early. That seems fine to me. I think he should be committed as a threat to himself and others. I mean, the man has COVID. He has a highly communicable and lethal illness. And the White House 
is riddled with it. And now we've got Mike Pence, who is the man in charge of the task force, the COVID task force, and his team is laughing at Kamala Harris for wanting to take precautions at a debate when he's supposed to be in quarantine. This is like, anyway, what can we say? It's all fine. On the theme of everything's fine, Donald Trump has offered a far-right group their brand new slogan. Like many others, I'm incredibly concerned about how Donald Trump did not explicitly condemn right-wing extremism and these proud boys. Uh, Not only did he merely not condemn them, he, during the presidential debate, advised them to stand back and stand by, which sounded to me an awful lot like he was kind of inciting violence a little bit. Uh, and people forget, Proud Boys was actually founded by a Canadian guy named Gavin McGinnis. So it occurred to us this week that a lot of famous alt-right types um, and white supremacist types and militia types come from Canada and gain notoriety abroad. Gavin McGinnis and Ezra Levant and Lauren Southern and Faith Goldie. It just strikes me as fascinating. What is it about Canadian culture that seems to produce these countercultural figures and then that we then export to the United States. It's a true mystery. So for this episode, Jen and I want to go and do a deep dive into the Canadian connection. We're going to talk to Dr. Barbara Perry. She is the director of the Centre on Hate, Bias and Extremism at the University of Ontario Institute of Technology. Uh, She'll break down the role of Proud Boys in Canada and whether we're on to something here. Why is it that this country creates some of these personalities despite our reputation for multiculturalism and left-leaning progressivism more generally? Should we be worried that Donald Trump's remarks might encourage extremism either here or in the United States? Oh, we've come so far from cultural exports like maple syrup and hockey and female singers and the raptors. Here we are. Everything's fine, Sandy. It's fine. Just keep saying it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. But first, here are a few non-Trump-related headlines. Yes, so CERB officially ended as of Saturday, October 3rd, 2020, but there should be a relatively seamless transition to EI if you still need income support. As of yesterday, Monday, October 5th, people can apply for two additional benefits through the Canada Revenue Agency, a new sick leave benefit and a new caregiver benefit. The caregiver benefit is for those who need to take time off work to take care of a dependent. Boy, I know so many people will so benefit from that. This was pushed through by Bill C-4, which created a new Canada recovery benefit for gig workers and others who don't qualify for EI, as well as sick leave benefit and caregiver benefit. CERB helped almost 9 million Canadians, and it's worth noting that the Government of Canada has actually legislated that EI will now match CERB's offering for a year. So whereas previously EI was $400 a week, uh, it will now match CERB's offering of $500 a week. This was a maneuver from the NDP, and reports say that it was part of the NDP voting in favor of the throne speech. As a result, the Liberals have passed their first confidence vote, and looks like no election. No election! Woohoo! No election! Meanwhile, the other thing I wanted to mention was that, hey, remember that Liberal promise that there would be open nominations in their in their nominations yes. in their in their writing? Yeah, yes. apparently that's that's not a thing anymore. That's that's stopped. So, what? Yeah, yeah, what? yeah, yeah. A liberal promise is not a promise. I I know you're shocked. Be be still your heart, Sandy. Be still your heart. <laughs> so, uh, you know, Justin Ling actually wrote about this uh, for the line. Justin Ling, former co-host of Oppo, um, and he noted that Toronto Centre in New York they just sort of just parachuted people in because that's that's just what they do now. So that's fine. 
That's fine. And the Green Party has a new leader, Toronto lawyer Anami Paul, who will be running in this very Toronto Centre by-election. Paul is the first black Canadian and first Jewish woman to be elected leader of a major federal party in Canada. So congratulations to Anami Paul. That'll actually be an interesting race in Toronto Centre. Well, it'll be, it will be interesting because it is sort of the coming out party for the new Green Party leader. And I, you know, I think that there will be attention. I wonder how competitive they'll be. Like Toronto Centre is a pretty staunchly liberal riding. It's a high risk, high play reward, man. Are you willing tonight to condemn white supremacists and militia groups and to say that they need to stand down and not add to the violence in a number of these cities as we saw in Kenosha and as we've seen in Portland. Are you prepared to to specifically do it? I would say say almost everything I see is from the left wing, not from the right wing. So what are you you, you saying? I'm I'm willing to do anything. I want to see peace. Then do it, sir. Say it. Do it. Say it. Do you want to call them... What do you want to call them? Give me a name. Give me a white name. White supremacists and white supremacists and white supremacists. Stand back and stand by. But I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what. Somebody's got to do something about Antifa and the left. Dr. Barbara Perry. Proud Boys got a shout out last week at the U.S. presidential debate. And a lot of Canadians who've been following the issue of right wing and white supremacist nationalism were extremely shocked by this. Well, everybody was. Tell us uh, your reaction when you heard about this. Well, I, I don't know that we should necessarily have been shocked because this has been his position all along. Uh, he's you know, really failed to denounce these kinds of actors. And he's, he's made claims before uh, about you know, good people on both sides, as he said about Charlottesville. Um, he referred to himself at one point as a nationalist. So for me, as someone who's following the, the news from the South and following the far right, um, this is not necessarily something that's surprising. The fact that he did it in the context of a debate and it was so public and so widely watched, you know, did not seem a, a very presidential thing to say in that sort of context. It was more than just he didn't denounce them, though. I mean, he almost seemed to be encouraging them or, or explicitly sort of telling them that, you know, a time for violence is, is imminent. I mean, that's, I think, what shocked a lot of people is that this seemed to go way beyond what Trump had done before. Yeah. And it was the follow up, right? So it wasn't just stand back and stand by, but it was followed by somebody has to do something about these leftists and these uh, Antifa. Uh, And so it really was, uh, as you say, right, that was promotion of hatred, promotion of violence, incitement. Uh, You know, in the Canadian context, those are, you know, those rise to the level of of criminal behaviors. I think you're right that to be that explicit is not just surprising and shocking, but, but dangerous. Can we just go back and describe who the Proud Boys are and also the Canadian connection, especially Gavin McInnes? Sure. Well, the the Proud Boys, uh, I first became aware of them probably four or five years ago when they started to circulate some videos. And and to be frank, I found it hard to take them seriously at that point because they really appeared to me to be, you know, a bunch of overaged frat boys. The videos were were comical in an odd sort of way, and I, that's the way I, I think that they were intended to be. That it was a lark. Yeah, they were racist and offensive, but they weren't really hardcore white supremacists. They began very quickly to catch on somehow, and I think that fed into their egos. And so you started to see chapters pop up all across the U.S. and Canada. The first time we saw them was a couple of years ago on Canada Day when they disrupted the Indigenous demonstration and protest of the Cornwallis statue down in Halifax. 
And uh, so that was our first hint that they had they had come home, uh, if you will. Since then, uh, I think that what we're seeing, and, and this has come out of interviews that I've been doing over the past few months with uh, law enforcement and anti-racist organizers, is that we're seeing chapters of Proud Boys now across the country in virtually every large community and, uh, and some smaller ones as well. So they are, are very active uh, in the Canadian context as well. And I think that part of that may be because, you know, that the, the founder was Canadian and there's a, a certain um, solidarity with him. So who is Gavin McInnes and how were, was the organization founded? Well, it's, it's interesting because uh, McGinnis started here with Vice. In fact, I think he was one of the co-founders of Vice, which we recognize as, you know, pretty far to the left, pretty progressive, uh, and then broke ways with them, started moving decidedly to the right, ended up with Rebel Media, uh, which is further right probably than, than Vice is to the left even, and then, you know, made his way to uh, to the U.S. and, and uh, engaging with um, sort of those we think of as alt-right uh, in the American uh, American context. So it's an interesting trajectory that he's gone through. You know, he claims to not be affiliated with Proud Boys anymore, but while he was leader, uh, he posted quite regularly about, you know, his hatred or, or fear or ridicule of immigrants, of Muslims in particular, of feminists, so the racism was was blended with the sort of the uh, the misogyny and patriarchal values and the need to control women as well. I was wondering if you could give me a sense of how many people actually consider themselves Proud Boys. You know, if there's only 100 Proud Boys across North America, you know, they're not going to be able to do all that much. Do they actually have enough mass to become a significant threat after Election Day? I think before Election Day, they represent a significant threat because there are fears that people are, uh, you know, that are associated with the Proud Boys will be engaging in voter intimidation, that they'll be showing up at uh, Republican rallies to cheer them on and at Democratic rallies to disrupt them. So I think that there are there are concerns even leading up to the election. And certainly after the election, especially if Trump should lose, I just have these horrible images of Proud Boys circling the White House and and uh, protecting him from the FBI, who will come to you know take him uh, out of the Oval Office. But uh, granted, you don't need a huge amount of people to disrupt a rally no, and and no. these sorts of tactics, of course. But you need a certain critical mass of followers. Do we know how many followers the Proud Boys actually have in Canada? We know, as I said, that we've got uh, chapters in in most uh, major cities. You know, those are groups of two or three, up to a couple of dozen in some of the larger centers. So certainly in the Canadian context, we've probably got at least a couple of hundred, maybe more. So, you know, if it's proportionate in the U.S. even, that's a couple of thousand. But the other thing to keep in mind is that they don't act alone. They don't act in isolation, but rather in solidarity with uh, other other groups. And so even in the Canadian context, we've seen them at rallies with the likes of the Hammerskins and the Three Percenters. You know, they were a big part of the Charlottesville protests, whatever you want to call them, that's the danger, is the increasing coalition building that we're seeing amongst groups that that share some core values and orientations. In this case, you know, sort of that pro-Trump resolve in particular. Do academics or law enforcement, as far as you know, have an idea of what kind of numbers are involved here, of all the groups? 
Uh, I don't think so. I think we have a sense of the number of groups that are active. Uh, I mean, the FBI, for example, has been saying for some time now, three or four years, that the greatest threat to national security and public disorder and public safety uh, is, in fact, the far right. Uh, So that would suggest to me that in terms of the movement, they are fearing, uh, you know, fairly large numbers. I wouldn't say necessarily, you know, organized numbers, but fairly large numbers. It's much more difficult to identify, you know, the number of people that are involved. I mean, you can't just go to the website. Lamut, for example, in Quebec, claimed very early on that they had 40,000 active members, you know, which was a wild exaggeration no doubt. But, you know, unless they say this is our membership, it's really difficult. You can't go by the number of, you know, likes and hits and, and, and all of that. But from the amount of activity online and offline, there's no doubt in my mind that in the last four years, the, the, the numbers of groups and numbers of individuals has increased dramatically. In the Canadian context, of course, it was uh, just about a week or so ago that there was an anti-racism demonstration in Red Deer that was violently disrupted. We had issues with RCMP and policing response to that. We don't actually need a very large organization for them to leap to the headlines and get on the front page and be in, in the news and to be violent and intimidating of, um, of individuals even here in Canada. What are you seeing as far as the influence in Canada itself? Well, the sorts of things that you've mentioned, I, I, you know, after the uh, the last Trump election, we did see a lot of activity on the ground. We saw a lot of rallies uh, sponsored by the far right. This is when we get, began to see the that sort of coalition building, and they lasted for a good couple of years. During COVID, you know, as with most of us, even even they, uh, you know, had a fairly low profile offline, but have begun again um, in the context of, you know, sort of, uh, again, marching shoulder to shoulder with the anti-maskers and the anti-vaxxers. So we've seen them taking these sorts of stances, right, on, on the basis of their own positions, but we've also seen them uh, disrupting these sorts of uh, activities, anti-racism rallies across the country. Alberta seems to have been a particular hot spot. I've, I've talked to a, a number of journalists from Alberta in the last couple of days, uh, and there's been a lot of activity, that kind of disruptive activity, um, not just in, in Red Deer, but uh, in Edmonton and Calgary as well. Uh, and I think we'll start to see this, this spreading again to other areas. You know, someone who sort of had her ear to the ground in conservative politics for many, many years, you know, after 9-11 and the years after it, there was a high degree of fear and, and frankly, paranoia about Islamic terrorism, Islamic extremism. And, you know, as time has worn on, we found that that fear and paranoia wasn't totally misguided. There was some element there, but it was really radically blown out of proportion. The number of Muslims who were engaged in in anything of that nature were utterly, utterly marginal, fraction of a fraction of percent. You know, um, of course, we had the rise of, of the Islamic State in the Middle East. There were there were a lot of sort of particular geopolitical factors that contributed to that. But particularly in North America, it, it was pretty minor. And now we seem to have watched this shift. We're now not so concerned about Islamic terrorism. We're, see, we're definitely seeing a rise in right-wing extremism, particularly online. The ISD just did a report fairly recently sort of doing a, an, an examination of, of the, the chatter from right-wing groups 
uh, in Canada. And whenever I see this stuff, it's really interesting to me because, of course, I see headlines about it and it looks really scary and it looks like it's this growing phenomenon. And then, you know, you scroll down to the actual numbers. And, for example, that right that Red Deer protest um, that, that Sandy pointed out, you know, we're talking 30 people showed up to it. Or, you know, you scroll through the report and you're ta- they're saying, hey, we identified 6,000 Twitter users of which like 12 percent were really active in a country of 37 million people. You know, I'm not saying that this is not an issue that we need to be paying attention to. Obviously, it doesn't take very many crazy people to do a lot of damage. But are we allowing ourselves to get carried away in the same way that I saw conservatives get carried away 10 years ago? Yeah, it's it's a really good question. And, and it is about sort of the relative impact and the, and the relative numbers. This is one of the reasons I started you know, looking into the far right is because I was really annoyed with the the obsession with Islamist inspired extremism uh, to the exclusion of anything else except for the left. Uh, you know, they're also very worried about the left, whoever they are. Just to put it in context, um, in that first study that we did that we published in 2015, um, between 1985 and 2014 or so, we identified uh, over 120 incidents of, of violence associated with far right extremism. And that was, you know, went all the way up to murder and arsons and firebombs and and those sorts of things. During the same period of time, we could identify eight incidents of Islamist-inspired violence in those whatever 15 years. No, I guess that's 30 years. and also think about, you know, the, the lone actors. And this is, I think, what one of the greatest emerging concerns is, is the, the, the lone actors, which is a bit of a, you know, misnomer because, well, they acted alone. Uh, they were very much inspired by, uh, you know, their, their online mobilization. So, again, between 2014, 2018, we had 19 homicides just in mass homicides. The 19 homicides associated with the, the far right. Um, Justin Bort killed three RCMP officers in Moncton. He's in that, of course, killed six Muslim men in Quebec City, and then Manassian uh, killed 10 people in Toronto. So I don't know that we're exaggerating necessarily, but there is legitimate reason to be concerned about not just the violence, but also the narratives, because it's a very different narrative uh, here. This is sort of an insider narrative uh, in some respects that, um, you know, there are problems with our country, and it's because of those immigrants, it's because of those, you know, LGBTQ people is because of those feminists. So it's a very reactionary narrative that has an impact not just on like-minded others and, and that audience, but also has an impact on those who are its targets, who are made to feel that they don't belong by these very narratives. It's almost as if how much, how large is the group is less of an issue than how lethal a threat does it represent to public safety? Yeah, you're right. And so When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Some of the groups are, you know, sort of explicitly uh, violent. The Proud Boys, for example, I mean, one of their uh, one of their lines uh, goes, you know, we love our guns. Um, so they're engaging the gun rights narrative. One of the 
um, steps in initiation into the group included very early on the need to beat someone up, especially someone who is, uh, you know, from Antifa. Uh, so violence is bred in the bone of, of so many of these groups. And I think that that really is uh, the worrying, uh, the worrying factor uh, in the Canadian context. And they've been, you know, quite explicit about the need to defend themselves and the nation. Um, so that, you know, that distortion of patriotism is their justification, their rationale for what they would claim is defensive violence. Um, so, for example, we've also got the, the accelerationist elements of the movement, like the in the in the U.S., the Boogaloo Boys, who were, you know, some inroads in Canada, but also um, the base in Adamwaffen that have been more active in the in the Canadian context. Uh, and these are folks who, you know, rabble rouse and, and stir up trouble and try to promote, depending on their perspective, all either, you know, an all out civil war or racial holy war, you know, as the as the ultimate uh, resolution to this problem that they identify of changing demographics and irresponsible from their perspective, um, immigration policies and practices. An observation that Sandy and I were making before the show was that, you know, Canada used to be well known for exporting celebrities and female singers and, 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 and comedians. And now all of a sudden, <laughs> if you look at sort of like our our most notable or notorious figures coming out of Canada, it's people like Lauren Southern and Faith Goldie and Ezra Levant and Gavin McInnes, or or it's people who um, are kind of on the ideological dark web kind of side, who I think deserve to be distinguished from white nationalists very clearly. But, you know, the Jordan Peterson types or the Gad Sadchat types or the Lauren Chen types. And it seems to me that we have this thing in this culture where we create these extreme counterculture figures and then export them into the American market. Oh, I would add St- uh, uh, Stephen Crowder, for example. You know, we seem to create these personalities or figures who can't seem to get a foothold within the Canadian market, go to America to seek um, a larger audience, generate quite a lot of profile and, and income from that. And I'm wondering, have you studied that phenomenon? Is that is that dynamic well understood? <laughs> not not at all. And I think it's a really interesting observation. And I, as you began to talk, I was thinking about you know they are cult, countercultural icons. You know, sort of the mirror image of what we thought of as con- countercultural icons in the in the nineteen sixties. Um, and I and I think you're you're absolutely right. I mean, we are I think complacent and we're very self conscious of this image, international image we have of being such an inclusive and equitable. Uh, you know society, you know, whether it's true or not is, a, is another matter. But these sorts of actors recognize that there is some small audience for that in the Canadian context, but certainly realize that they're on a larger stage. Uh, and I would say it's not just that they've garnered attention in, in the US, but in uh, Europe and Australia as well. Countries that actually do have uh, a larger receptive audience, I think, to these sorts of ideals. They're so far out of the pale of the way we like to think about ourselves. Uh, or beyond the pale of what we like to think about ourselves. And they didn't get much traction. If you remember, I think it was Levant even that tried to launch Sun TV that would rival Fox. Uh, and it just got no uptake. There was no interest in it. But, you know, it's interesting that, that I think Ezra Levant is almost a clear example of this. Like you had someone who realized pretty quickly that in order to build something economically sustainable for himself, he was going to have to branch out outside of the Canadian market very aggressively. And, and he did. Um, so I thought that that was that was kind of interesting. It, it, I just kind of wonder what about this culture seems to create 
or hone these types of figures. I, the economic the economic incentive for them to go outside the country is very clear to me. I'm just wondering what it is about the culture itself that seems to create and hone these particular types of figures. Well, I think they did get a lot of uh, of blowback uh, in the Canadian context from uh, you know other media sources, uh, from general public as well. I mean, even if you look on some of their social media platforms, there was a lot of, of negative. There are a lot of negative responses to their kind of coverage. There are a lot of positive ones, you know. Don't get me wrong, um, but there is a lot of resistance, I think, to uh, to their messaging. I wonder if that's blowback is actually what contributed to their to their fame, right? Like it's the blowback to their success. Actually, yeah, yeah. Well, but I mean. Yeah, but I mean, Jordan yeah. Peterson has, has openly stated that like he's he's openly yeah. stated. And I think Candleland did a great podcast about this, but he stated, you know, I found a way to basically hack left wing outrage, you know, for my own financial yeah. benefit. Like like this is this is very consciously done. So I, I, I wonder I wonder if there's something about the sort of the, the, the degree of, of social cohesion that we have in Canada that sort of expels these people and and probably to some extent even radicalizes them and puts them in a position where they're where they're able to sort of translate that that exile into fame and wealth of overseas. I, I just I think that there's a there's a dynamic there that's worth exploring a bit. It, there absolutely is. And, and I, I will give that due consideration. But yeah, I think there is a, a sense of being emboldened by that backlash, right? Mm-hmm, Th- that they're exactly. quite happy to have touched a nerve. It's almost like Trump, you know, when he first started, you know, the campaign, his, his initial campaign, you know, no one thought he was serious until people started to take him seriously. And he thought, oh, well, you know, there's a buck to be made here. There's, you know, there's attention, there's fame, there's fortune. And I think it's, you know, it's a very similar thing here. You know, let's, let's play on this. Let's exploit this notoriety, uh, if you will, to uh, enhance our own reputation and and standing. Um, Dr. Perry, one of the uh, uh, questions that I have is about the interplay between the public-facing entities, many of which absolutely deny that they are any part of incitement to violence or any of this disruption that we've been discussing. They'll just say, well, they're about freedom of speech and expressing opinions. Then the interplay between that public facing narrative and the more concerning elements um, of the recruitment of individuals who actually do pose a threat. How does the public face of the media platform interplay with the organizing that appears to be going on? The movement has become a little more canny uh, in terms of the way it represents itself. This is the trend that we're seeing across the movement is uh, a recoding of the language. So you talk about that public face and it's very, not neutral language, but more palatable uh, language. So, you know, they don't talk about hatred of of particular groups. Some of them still do. Some of them are still quite blatant. Um, But for example, um, one of the the slides that I often use when we're talking about the Proud Boys, to go back to them, uh, is one where, you know, this is where you see their catchphrase, we're Western chauvinists who refuse to apologize for uh, creating the modern world. Um, Then they go on to say, we venerate the housewife, we cherish free speech, we love our guns. So free speech, for example, we cherish free speech. So a lot of the the far-right rallies that we've been seeing in the last couple of years describe themselves as free speech rallies. So this has become a code for, uh, you know, instead of saying PC, it's now a code for, um, you know, the, the resistance to what they see as, you know, too much progressive policy. So, um, 
yeah, the public the public face is muted uh, very often on traditional platforms like uh, Facebook, where there's where they still have a space. Um, less muted in places like Telegram and Gab, and of course in their closed chats, which is where you know the real scheming and planning and and uh, and dirty work uh, goes on. Um, so these groups, you know, sort of try to aim for plausible deniability in terms of the language. I mean, one of the other strategies they use is to include you know people of color in their membership, for example. Well, we can't possibly be racist, else we wouldn't have you know Latino members or Black members. I guess the problem for me is this: it's almost a, an American style um, veneration for free speech in the sense that it is unfettered and it is absolute. Which in the American context, it almost is. We have good you know precedent around the definition of what is hate speech. There, you know, people think it's a blurry line. I think it's a pretty fine line in terms of you know what uh, what constitutes hate speech. And, um, and and dangerous speech, more importantly. Research on right-wing extremism is still in its nascent stages. Although you've been at this for a while now, where do you hope to see it go? Oh, more of the same. I mean, we, as you say, we have so little um, research here. There's, you know, there's been some really interesting work in Quebec, for example, around the lingering uh, skinhead movement and the skinhead music scene and, and how that contributes. Um, I think we just need a whole lot more um, on the ground monitoring of the, the groups on an ongoing basis so that we get a sense, you know, that quantitative risk, but also the qualitative threat. So, you know, for example, we have our research assistants doing media scans, uh, you know, on a daily basis. What kinds of incidents are we seeing? What kinds of activities are they engaged in? Because there's a tendency, especially when we talk to law enforcement, there's a tendency not to see the big picture. Uh, yeah, we've had a couple of incidents here in this community, but, you know, that's, that doesn't really mean anything. Well, when you add that, you know, those couple of incidents to the couple of incidents that are happening in, you know, 30 or 40 or 50 other cities, uh, then, yeah, there there is a problem. Um, and so I think that, that that is really important to continue to document the activity and the breadth of their activity, right? That it's not just a, uh, you know, a, a, an Edmonton or, uh, you know, even a, just an Alberta phenomenon, but it's also something what we've discovered this time around, there's a lot of activity in the maritime provinces, for example, that we didn't capture the first time around. Um, so it really is, you know, sort of, we're, I think we're, we're garnering more and more evidence that it really is coast to coast, maybe not that third coast. Uh, we don't seem to see much activity in the in the territories. In, in the north. Well, and, and it's so vital for Canadians to be kept abreast of exactly what is going on and what we should be watching for. Dr. Barbara Perry, thank you so much for joining us today and, and uh, enlightening us with, with this information, which is so important. Thanks again. Thank you. Thank you for the conversation. What did you think, Jen? How did you think that interview went? I thought it was a super interesting interview. I mean, I did tweak a little bit to the idea that um, particularly this is a specific problem to Alberta, which I don't think was her point. But I think it's worth exploring a little bit because I have a personal story that I would love to share if, if you'd be willing, Sandy. Sure. When I first came to Alberta back in 2010, one of the first sort of real stories that I, I got to cover was this this case of or the story of a handful of neo-Nazis who uh, were doing kind of like their annual protest in Calgary. Um, and as per what had become a tradition, 
they were massively swarmed by anti-racists and there were like protests and counter protests. They were yelling at each other. And in years previous, this had sort of escalated into a squabble. It escalated into street violence. And um, this had kind of continued. And, and over the times that I've been here, I've noticed that these sorts of incidents have become sort of less common and then more common and they kind of morphed. Um, so when you brought up that, that case in Red Deer, I was kind of intrigued by it because it, it reminded me of, of stuff that I'd seen here in Alberta previously. I think that both the left and the right in this country um, treat Alberta with disproportionate symbolic significance. The left sort of latches on to these cases of isolated street theater and they use it as proof that this Alberta is this racist place and therefore conservatives are racist. Like it, it becomes that kind of a narrative. And the far right sees Alberta as potentially a vanguard for potential new followers. And it creates this... Um, this alluring space for for uh, uh, this kind of really performative stuff to play out. And of course, the media loves these types of stories because there's conflict, there's drama, there's all kinds of great stuff. But when I click through to these stories, it's always like, you know, 12 racists show up in a parking lot in Edmonton. Or, you know, in the last case story you cited, it was, you know, 30 people in Red Deer. In all of these cases, the races are massively outswamped by anti-racists. So, uh, you know, I think that there's um, a lot going on in that dynamic that that is worth sort of picking apart and exploring. And I just don't think it's ever as simple as all the racists are in Alberta, or that this is in any way representative, because it's not representative. Everybody knows that these kinds of conflicts and confrontations could happen anywhere in Canada. And this emerging threat of racism and and perhaps even street violence and street confrontation or even terrorist acts could happen does happen everywhere so to me the geography is not that important what's kind of more interesting is the relationship between the movement per se how many people are in the proud boys how many people are in the three percenters or the oath keepers or these or Lemut and each of these organizations that's one question but actually it's the lone actors who are inspired by a lot of the rhetoric that they see that is the real public safety threat. Donald Trump has tweeted that he's asking people to volunteer to be election poll watchers. The fear and intimidation um, and attacks on the public, the potential for attacks on the public is just turning into um, a five alarm fire, it seems to me. I mean, I'm, I'm big on the this election could go very, very badly. Uh, I'm very, very concerned about acts of, of civil unrest and civil violence um, leading up to the election and afterwards like that, that I'm very much on that train. But, you know, here in Canada, it's just really interesting to me who gets the bad rap and who doesn't. You know, I've got stats can open up and, you know, which city in Canada appears to have the, the highest hate crime rate per hundred thousand population and highest by far. And it's not close. Probably the city that has the highest visible minority quotient. It's Hamilton. It's Hamilton. It's Hamilton by far. This is not really about, well, where are they? This is a Canadian problem. Um, and it could happen anywhere. It doesn't surprise me that it happens in Hamilton because I think that uh, the area around Toronto has a high number of um, members of visible minorities, black, indigenous people of color, and those people get attacked and they will complain more than a largely white population does. Vancouver has a fairly high rate. 
7.1 per 100,000. We have a high number of visible minority people. Thunder Bay, people. 8 per 100,000. So anyway, it's just kind of interesting to me. That's all. Ottawa has like 9.8. Like anyway, like it's 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 not the breakdown that you would necessarily expect. It really isn't. Why would you expect a largely white population to have a higher number of racist incidents? You're going to have the higher number of racist incidents in populations with that are heavily racialized. No, I'm trying to sort of break stereotypes because I think the stereotypes feed into respective narratives that are harmful that are just really, really harmful. It's a dangerous narrative because it assumes that like all of the racism is happening in the conservative enclave. You know what I mean? And the truth is, I just don't think that's true. I think that that racism is a, is a cross-country phenomenon and that we, we fundamentally agree on. Now it's time for the mailbag question this week. How much will Canada benefit from the money that is not being spent in the U.S. by cross-border shoppers and snowbirds grounded this year by the closed border? From Mike Bodnar by email. Mike, you know what? Neither of us are economists, and so we're not super well-placed to answer that question. But if I were to guess, I'm going to guess that uh, Canada is not going to benefit very much by this for two reasons. One, online shopping seems to be uh, eating up the money that we're not spending elsewhere, and all that a lot of that money basically goes back to the states. And secondly, I think that the businesses that are really suffering as a result of COVID are the very local re- boutiques, retail stores that. Um, prop up a Canadian sort of uh, fashion industry, sorry, a fashion retail industry. So my just random guess uh, is that it's not going to make a huge amount of difference. Sandy? It's interesting because I did look into the data a little bit and after... Oh, you just did research. Well, fine, make me look bad. (laughs) Anyway, I did look into this and and there was a a huge, um, just an enormous dip in consumer spending in April, about 40% drop year over year, um, much of which has largely recovered. Restaurant and grocery spending has recovered. Uh, and clothing and education spending has gone way down. And that is where we see the small businesses getting hurt. And I think that as as we go forward, we will continue to see pressure on small businesses. And I think what this uh, what this pandemic has really done, it's not so much the travel spending as it's been that this has uh, hyper- accelerated the mass movement to online buying and most of that money or a lot of that money is going to go straight across the border so whether you're traveling or you're not a lot of that money is still going south of the border and it is our small retailers and these are our community businesses you know so maybe maybe the one thing we could do here is have a shout out please support your local businesses these are our families these are our neighbors and they need our support If you have a question you'd like us to answer, tweet us at oppocast, or you can email us at oppo at canadalandshow.com. That's it for oppo this week. We'll be back again in two weeks. Once again, the ways to get in touch are at oppo at canadalandshow.com or on Twitter at oppocast. This episode was produced by Tiffany Lamb with additional production support from Damalula Anime. Our managing editor is Andrea Schmidt, and the theme music is by Nathan Burley. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. 
It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.